You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts and others about human rights and international humanitarian law. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and International Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Sandra Jacobsen. Today we speak to Tuli Madonsela, a South African advocate who served as a state's public protector between 2009 till 2016. Madonsela was invited by the Institute to speak at the annual Swedish Forum for Human Rights in November where she held a lecture on the correlation between anti-corruption and human rights. We sat down to talk more about these issues and her personal thoughts on what corruption really is and what needs to be done to prevent it. Enjoy. The public protector's job is to investigate, report and take appropriate remedial action. So my job, together with my team, was to either initiate investigations on our own when we saw alleged wrongdoing or a member of parliament or an ordinary member of the public would um, bring a complaint to our system. And we had about 22 offices across the country and we would evaluate the complaint to look at whether it is within our jurisdiction and even if it's in our jurisdiction to look at whether it has merit and and lastly to see whether there isn't another institution that could handle it because we have a multiple agency approach in South Africa. There are various agencies that deal with maladministration, corruption and uh, other forms of wrongdoing within the state. Having assessed that we're the best institution to handle that matter, we would then uh, assign the matter to an appropriate member of the public protector team or members of the public protector team to investigate the matter. Once it would be investigated, if it's a small matter, it could be resolved through conciliation or mediation. And um, if it's then a corruption matter, definitely it would be a matter that is investigated and uh, I make a finding as the public protector. Or if I make a finding of wrongdoing, I would also then issue a directive on how this matter could be resolved. For example, one of the cases that I dealt with was allegations that um, the president had benefited wrongly from public funds in that uh, about a, a quarter of a million rands had been spent to renovate his private home in the name of security. And when I investigated that matter, I found that a whole lot of things that had been paid for were firstly not security matters, but secondly they were luxurious. They, they, they were not necessarily like a swimming pool, a, an amphitheater, a, a, a visitor's room, and an and extensive paving uh, in the yard. I made a finding that that was excessive, but not only was it excessive, it was unlawful. And money that was meant for poverty alleviation, it was meant for a, an urban renewal project, was taken away and, and used to pay for, for the president's comfort when some of the staff members indicated that that was improper. And the matter ended up in the media. One of my findings was that the president had the duty once this matter went to the media to investigate it and stop the rot and he failed to do that and by so doing he violated his duties 
under the Executive Members Ethics Act and also under the Constitution, Section 96 of the Constitution. I made a finding, two findings. The one was there was wrongdoing in failure to investigate and also that he had wrongfully benefited from uh, public funds and that he should pay a reasonable portion of that money. So how did you find out about, about that? The matter was reported to me as the pub protector by an ordinary member of the public. Our act allows any person who sees or perceives wrongdoing to report the matter to the pub protector. In this case, a member of the public brought it to me. But because it was reported in the media, there were several people that reported the matter to my office, including one of the political parties in parliament, which is the Democratic Alliance. How many incidents of corruption did you investigate? I investigated far too many incidences of corruption. I wish I could say, as one colleague of mine from the Netherlands, that I only investigated one corruption scandal in my lifetime. In in our case, we investigated far too many, and some of them I left um, uh, incomplete. But the completed ones, this is one. One of the last ones that I investigated was an allegation that the president's family or a member of the president's family, his son and uh, another family, the Gupta family, were working together to, with the president to uh, dishonestly remove ministers in government from office who were not... Um, agreeing to do their bidding mm. and appointing uh, persons into ministerial posts who are aligned to their objectives. And this investigation came after a minister of finance was fired by the president in December 2015. And it was alleged that that firing was um, orchestrated by the Gupta family, which is in business with his son, and that together at a meeting with the Gupta family, this whole plan was was um, orchestrated, and then it unfolded, resulting in the Minister of Finance being fired, and somebody who's allegedly close to that family being appointed. And as the matter um, uh, came into the public space, there were more allegations of ministers being appointed, ministers being dismissed, and board members of state-owned enterprises being appointed or dismissed, depending on their willingness to do the bidding of the Gupta-Zuma alliance. Mm. And so what would you say could be done to prevent this? Prevention and eradication of corruption requires leadership from every person in society. Um, firstly, those who see it should report it and be willing to be witnesses when there's an investigation such as the pub protector. So those witnesses should report it. And it also requires strong institutions, strong and independent institutions such as the pub protector. Um, one of the things, though, that I picked up as a pub protector was that you don't just need a strong and independent public protector. You also need a well-resourced institution. You also need 
into a system as we had where there is really um, some kind of um, synergy mm. between all of the institutions that are doing oversight so that whatever the public protector does is supported by the auditor general is supported by the prosecutorial authority by the police by parliament and the courts currently some of that has been working but um, i've noticed in the last few months since i left office in the past year since i left office that the whistleblowers have been investigated, but the central alleged wrongdoers on whom the whole case rests have not really been investigated speedily. Okay. But so what you say is that the institutions need to work more together, be more intertwined, or exactly. do I understand correctly? Exactly. The, the institutions should avoid a divide and rule mm-hmm. approach by the alleged wrongdoers. You need strong institutions, committed institutions, and, but you need the institutions to connect the lights mm-hmm. so that there's no um, success in dividing and ruling them. Mm-hmm. And Regarding tomorrow's lecture as well, we were talking a bit more about anti-corruption and human rights and how human rights are later violated by corruption. Yes. What is your what is your view on that? The point I'll make tomorrow is that it is not possible to advance human rights when there is corruption, because corruption violates one of the essential human rights, which is the right to equality. When there's corruption, there's no right or full enjoyment of the right to equality because corruption allows people to abuse entrusted power for personal gain. By so doing, the one who abuses entrusted power for personal gain already has an advantage that they should not have. That violates the right to equality. The one who gets the benefit by paying for it or advancing some kind of, uh, of benefit for it also violates the right to equality. Corruption basically violates the ability to create a level playing field for human beings. Whether it's just in getting licenses or just being um, uh, treated equally in terms of law enforcement such as traffic uh, rules enforcement, that um, is a human rights issue. But when there's endemic corruption and or systemic corruption, it could even poison the justice system, where police may look the other way if they are bribed. Prosecutors may look the other way. And in some countries, even judges may be, may be bribed and end up not enforcing the laws in an impartial way. So yes, corruption has the potential to not only to violate human rights, but it can also undermine democracy. Mm. Exactly. As I see it, it kind of goes in both ways, that uh, corruption undermines human rights and human rights are therefore violated, but also that human rights could be used as a tool for uh, preventing corruption from happening. Absolutely. And one way you could use human rights to prevent corruption is, number one, 
to make sure that everyone understands what their rights are because often corruption happens when people don't know what their rights are, when um, you are told you need to pay a bribe to get this, that and that. Whereas if there's transparency about what's your right, what services are you entitled to, what's the level of service, um, it, there's less room for, for corruption. In fact, one colleague from the World Bank created a formula for corruption, which is corruption C equal uh, unlimited discretion, which is D, or unfettered discretion, which is D minus A, which is minus accountability. So C is equal to D minus A. Huh. That's clever. <laughs> it is, yes. But but it's true. I mean, I'm seeing it at home and just globally when I go into anti-corruption platforms is this, um, to limit corruption, you need to limit discretion. Mm. There must be discretion, but the discretion should be within parameters that are understood by the ordinary people where they can say, no, you can't do that, you can't do this. Secondly, when there's uh, impunity, when there's limited accountability, there's in, an inadequate transparency and openness, it's much easier for corruption to thrive. Yeah, because yeah, I was just going to ask you um, what you think corruption is. Like, why, how do you, why does it happen from the start? Because, I mean, even though you, you were talking about the Netherlands before and how corruption is not as, um, how do you say, it doesn't happen as often. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, we have several locations in Sweden just this year of huge scandals of corruption. So it, it, do, it does happen here as well. Yes. So why, why do you think corruption is? Well, corruption is abuse of entrusted power for personal gain. It could be people giving each other bribes uh, to distort decision-making in order that whoever gives the bribe benefits. But modern corruption is not just about bribes. It could be me giving a benefit to someone in my church uh, corruptly because I want to enhance my position in the church. And a lot of it today happens in, in, in political circles when I don't necessarily uh, pay a bribe. I actually um, uh, place somebody in a higher position, in, in, in a political position, uh, so that uh, um, uh, based on that, I also benefit by being given a, a, a job by that person. So mm. there's a whole range of things that people do. In South Africa, for example, the Act does not talk about a bribe. It talks about gratification. So gratification could be any benefit that I dishonestly get by dishonestly using my entrusted power to make somebody benefit. Um, why do people engage in corruption? Again, I think it was a colleague from either Holland or Sweden who wrote an article that says from grievance to greed. I have seen in corruption that um, 
for some, it starts with grievance and it escalates to greed. So I'm corrupt because as a policeman, I'm not properly paid. I need the money or I'm a, uh, I'm a home affairs. Those people who give uh, permits, travel permits and things like that, I need the money. And um, so, so it starts with small things like that. Or I'm issuing a tender uh, and I feel I'm not paid enough. Let me get some of it for myself. Sometimes it doesn't start from grievance. Sometimes it starts from need to greet. I have had fascinating stories about some of the people who are involved in South Africa and what we're calling state capture, which is grand corruption involving high-powered people. Is that for some person, they were just ordinary people but needing a job. Uh, they were between jobs, and the nefarious people caught them and gave them a job. Based on having given them a job, then they expected them to give tenders to them and licenses to them. Or somebody needed, uh, had a cash flow problem at a particular time, and they recommended somebody, and they thought this was a person who could assist them, but they didn't understand that the person was going to assist them with the cash flow problem, and then but then require something in return that they would exercise their public power to um, to benefit the companies related to these people. So it starts with things like that. But I think at the end of the day, it boils down to ethics. If we are to address the issue of corruption, we've got to start with building the right sets of ethics in the people we're going to um, take to positions of authority, whether it's in companies or in the public sector. I've worked in the public sector and I've said that if somebody has not been able to manage their financial affairs and have depended on gifts before you take them to government, why on earth do you think that now that they go to government, they will not depend on gifts? And secondly, once they depend on gifts, the gift givers expect something in return. They say there's no free line. So if somebody has not really been able, has been a prodigal in the way they've managed their own affairs, you've got to be careful about putting them in positions of authority. Just people who love freebies, you should be careful in putting them in government. But secondly, we have to be careful about people's ethics before we put them in positions of power. If somebody's ethics have been weak before you give them authority, their ethics will be tested even more now that they have not only power to do wrong, but also the power to hide their wrongdoing. Exactly. Yes. But also, don't you think it's the, maybe maybe some people don't understand that it's corruption. Maybe they just see it as kindness. Do you know? Like, it's true. So how do you? I mean, obviously there you need to inform more people about the actual consequences of being bribed or taking a job and then give something back. But don't you think that is also an issue that it's not a viewed upon as corruption? No, you're absolutely right. Some of the small cases start with some kindness, but also a sense that people in society often don't know that it's their right to be served. And just because you did your job properly, they they give you what in South Africa started as cold drink or a goat just because you did your job properly because they're so used to being treated badly that when somebody does their job properly they give something back but then that creates an expectation that I should say first those who are likely to give me something in return 
It boils down to educating people, and and it also boils down to enforcing um, those ethics that require that we don't take gifts of a, a certain amount. In South Africa at the moment, our executive ethics code requires you to disclose those gifts. I think it's time has arrived that requires us to change our code of ethics, at least in South Africa, to require that no gifts should be taken at all from members of the public. None. Number two, um, that um, if a gift is given and you already don't know where it comes from, it should be given to charity. I think for me, we've, we've reached that point where the only way is just to lock the door on gifts, totally. And also lock the door to gifts, not just gifts to you, gifts to your family members. That Because you, you get some of it that is given in the back door, that the gift is not given directly to me. It's given to a trust, like now I have a foundation. If I was a member of some important government structure, the gift would then not be given to me personally. It would be given to the Tulima Donsela Foundation. But that still can be corruption. So I would say there should be no gifts. Or alternatively, maybe a more than... um, compassionate approach would be to say that if we are to receive gifts, no gifts from anybody who will receive a benefit from you. And that would mean then that the Auditor General or an integrity commissioner should check all the time if there's been any link between people who gave gifts and people who got tenders from government or people who got gifts and people whose children got jobs from the people who received those gifts or from people who are senior in political parties where the gifts were, were given. I, I think I have to move on to uh, to the last question, unfortunately. But um, I also have to ask you because um, you've been high up in society. Has has someone ever tried to bribe you, for example? Not directly. I have been asked to be a member of a company that was going to have tenders from government, and I was told that I don't have to be a member personally. That I should nominate one of my children to be a member. And the person who was asking me to be part of this was saying, there's life after the pub protector. And my view was, yes, there's life after the pub protector. I had a life before I became a pub protector. And I'll go back to that life. And that's exactly what I've done. I've gone back to academia. I've taken up a law professorship. And I think that's another thing. If we're to prevent corruption, we need to put people in government who are competent to get other jobs. Because if you are in position of authority and you you feel you don't deserve that position and also that if you lost that job, there will be nowhere else for you to be employed, you are a pawn in the system. People will ask you to do things and you'll think, if I lose this job, I will never have an equivalent job. In my case, I knew that I could always have an equivalent job. But also I told my children that it doesn't matter. Even if I get a job that pays me less than this, it's a life. We should be ready to live that kind of life. That was Julie Maronsela, a South African advocate who served as a public protector for over six years in South Africa. My name is Sandra Jacobsen and this podcast was brought to you from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden.
And if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check up on our website for more interviews regarding human rights issues.